Hello, and welcome back to Real-Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Mosier, joined again a month later by my co-host, Caitlin Redwing. Caitlin, what's it like to be back? I'm alive. It feels good. <laughs> um, if I cough during this, I'm sorry. I'm like, I think Gamescom gave me a cough for the rest of my life. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I will try and mute my mic when that happens. But no, it feels really good to be back. I'm probably going to be really rusty because like I told them before we joined, I tried to join a Google Meet for this because I forgot how we recorded our podcast. And I was sitting there and I was like, where is everybody? So that's that's where my brain is at today, but I am very happy to be back. Well, you are not the only one shaking off the the podcast dust this week because we're joined by Joseph Bradford this week, managing editor at MMORPG and friend of the show, longtime listener. Um, he'll be joining us to discuss this week's biggest headlines, including the Unity runtime fee controversy, the latest first party showcases, more Starfield news, and more. Joseph, uh. You know, Caitlin, it's been about a month since she's been on the show. When's the last time you were telling us right before? It's been about a year since you've last podcasted? Yeah, about a year. Uh, me and my old associate editor, Shank, uh, did a podcast that we started way back in like 2013, 2014. Uh, we did about 300 episodes of a podcast called Gaming the Industry. Um, and yeah, we stopped doing it about 2022, February. So it's been over, over a year now, year and a half. Well, we're happy to have you back. Um, you both have come, you know, coming hot off some events. Joseph's actually, we were catching yeah. in between events. Uh, Caitlin, I know you were at Gamescom. Joseph, you were most recently at PAX West. Um, so we'll be talking about that a bit as well. Um, Caitlin, like top line, what was this your first Gamescom, second Gamescom? My first Gamescom. I don't know why I had to think about that. I've never like <laughs> left the country other than Canada, but yes, that was. Wow. So was what was first. that experience like? It was fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really loved like Germany in general. It's the power of like, I don't know, clean cities and tr transportation makes me sort of miss New York, the transportation part, not the clean city part. Um, but no, it was Gamescom is huge. Like I know, I, I'm sorry, the cat is, she wants attention right now, but everyone was always telling me they're like, Gamescom is like, ginormous and i had never been to e3 so i've only been to pax and like gdc which are much smaller in scale um i didn't really have anything to compare it to so i did not know what i was getting myself into but it's like 10 times the size of pax probably more because some of those buildings have like two floors so my feet hurt by the end of the week but it was very cool um and just yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I hope I get to go back next year. And the years forward, I ate some really great food, met some awesome people. My cat missed me a ton, which is evidence. <laughs> As evidence by the <laughs> Yeah, podcast. if anybody's watching the podcast, um, you can see why. <laughs> She's, I, I don't know. She's She missed me because I, I came home and then I also left and I was in, I was in Sam's stopping grounds for a little bit as well lucky duck getting to go to the first chiefs game whereas i had to watch them lose from home <laughs> oh yeah at least like watching them lose in person was still kind of fun i guess because <laughs> i got to tailgate and hang out afterwards and if they were going to lose to anybody i'm glad it was at least to the chiefs 
Um, mm-hmm. Many people listening to this probably don't care at all about football. You're totally valid. I, on the other hand, have lost my life to it. Joseph, <laughs> I know you are both. Uh, remind me, I, I see you tweeting about yeah. you know the games every Sunday. What's your team? Uh, so I am a long, long suffering Arizona Cardinals fan. Uh, so I started, uh, I'm originally from Arizona. So once I found out in like back in the nineties, they had a team, I kind of switched from being a 49ers fan to a, a Cardinals fan. And that was made a whole lot easier when Jake Plummer took over the team in like the early late nineties, early two thousands. And then you had the Kurt Warner, Larry Fitzgerald mm-hmm. years. And you know, now it's the long suffering, but my family has a history of long suffering cause they're from Detroit. And so they're all Lions yep. fans. <laughs> so <laughs> as someone who grew yeah. up in Michigan, <laughs> yep. I, yeah, I lived I there for about for a year them. and uh, <laughs> the, the, the angst is real for sure. My mother is a Cardinals fan. She kind of switched when I switched teams. She was originally a Cowboys fan. My brother is a Cowboys fan, but you know, no one's perfect. So <laughs> <laughs> you stole the yeah, words no, right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the Cardinals, oh, you guys had a close game yesterday. We had a close game only because the defense decided to allow the other team to give us a close game. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're up 20 to nothing at halftime, you should win. You shouldn't like allow them to score 31 points in the. Yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm still angry. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the zero points, the Cardinals defense got my fantasy team this week. <laughs> Feels the pain. <laughs> it's a good defense when they decide to play. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well. Well, Caitlin shared her latest on uh, Gamescom. Joseph, of course, before we get into the show itself, we'd like to ask our guests like a warm up question. You most recently attended PAX West. What how many PAX Wests have you been to now? So I've only actually been to three. Uh, My first was back in like 2015. Um, It was actually the first time I wrote for MMORPG. I was a freelancer back then and uh, happened to see the old editor in chief post on Twitter. He needed someone to cover a few games that he overbooked and I happened to be there. So it's kind of what opened the door there. But uh, after that, I didn't go again until last year. Um, and then, so yeah, three total last year, hmm. this year, 2015. I asked because last year, PAX West 2022 was the first time that you and I met. So I didn't know if it had mm-hmm. been in, in you attending this year. I was like, oh, is this kind of an annual occurrence for, for Joseph? So good to know that this was number three. Yeah, we were, we were thinking about making an annual occurrence until we went to PAX West this year and realized that we had way too many people at PAX West. Um, mm. we actually had four of us there, uh, which was weird considering we don't have four full-time members on staff, but, uh, we had me, my video editor, uh, Steven, and then two freelancers joined us. Uh, and it was the first time I actually met my video editor in person. You know, we've worked together for about five years now, but never had an opportunity to meet cause he lives out in Houston. So, uh, but yeah, PAX was, it was interesting. Um, but we we kind of learned right off the bat that maybe four people was too many to have there because it just wasn't that big. Everybody was doing Gamescom mm-hmm. the week before. And so there really wasn't a whole lot of new things going on uh, at PAX this year. It, it felt bigger simply because they had it in more buildings. Nintendo took over half of the, uh, the main hall. So they had uh, part of PAX in the uh, new building, the Summit building, which was about two blocks away. But even then, it just it never felt quite as crazy as it did last year when it was like their first year back after the pandemic. And so with that being said, of the things you did get to check out this year, what stood out to you? What were your favorite moments from PAX West 2023? So funnily enough, my favorite moment wasn't even something that happened at PAX proper. Uh, Pearl Abyss was having a fan get together 
that I had no idea was going on because, you know, why would they invite media to a fan gathering? You know, makes sense. Um, but we happened to be in GameWorks and I saw the banner for where people to direct people where to go. And I went upstairs just to see what was going on. And we all kind of crashed that party a little bit. Um, <laughs> Earl Abyss was so nice. They, once they realized, once they recognized, you know, me, uh, from the trip we took to the Pearl Abyss headquarters to do the land of the morning light, uh, preview, um, a couple of people from there were at the uh, event. Um, they let us in, you know, we got to talk about the game, talk to fans. It was a lot of fun and it really kind of solidified this, idea that I've had for a long time that, you know, we often hear about game developers and how much they care about their fans. Pearl Abyss kind of goes that extra step, it seems, compared to some other developers. They really love their fans <laughs> so much so that they, you know, threw on this huge party at PAX for anybody who just happened to be in the area. Free food, you can win prizes. They were giving away graphics cards and, you know, CPUs and stuff like that. It was, it was crazy. It was really cool. Um, as far as what was actually on the show floor, Obviously, you guys had the Bloodlines 2 announcement, which was pretty cool to see the booth kind of change, you know, overnight as that was happening because they, you know, you guys had a booth there the day before, but the announcement didn't come till Saturday. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was pretty cool to see. But Path of Exile 2 was kind of the big thing that I played there. Um, that article just went live yesterday, if you don't mind the plug. <laughs> so not at uh, all. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun, too. But other than that, I mean, I kind of took it easy. Having four people there, I didn't have to do a whole lot. So I was just kind of floating, seeing what kind of seeing what was out there. Nice. So based on, you know, kind of your findings and observations this year, the competition with Gamescom, seeing things that had been in, you know, past couple showcases and events, um, how do you think you'll pivot your strategy for next year? Do you still plan to attend? You'll just send fewer freelancers or is that a next year concern? I think it depends. Because um, I think one reason why Gamescom was so big is because there was no E3. And Summer Game Fest was... You know, it was bigger than it was last year, but it was still very small. I don't know if you guys went to Summer Game Fest at all, um, mm -hmm. but it was so self-contained. It had like a, a feel of E3, but no one was rushing around. You could actually have conversations. You could network like E3 used to be um, before it just became less of a industry show and more of a consumer show. Um, so I think that is really, you know, kind of why Gamescom seemed bigger than it actually, you know, usually Gamescom is always huge, but because there was no E3, there was no big showcase at the beginning of the summer. Everyone kind of pivoted towards, you know, Gamescom at the end of the summer. Um, so regards to PAX, it really is going to depend on uh, just really what's going on. We know E3 is not happening in person next year already. Uh, so I kind of am expecting the same kind of thing uh, with Gamescom kind of dominating everything and PAX being, you know, the more consumer, smaller show as it should be. So mm -hmm. as far as our strategy, I would love to go because I have a friend who lives in Seattle. It's, you know, free, free room whenever I do. <laughs> and I love Seattle. Um, but I mean, it is one of those things where just because I love it doesn't necessarily mean it makes sense for me to be there versus just sending someone who lives in the area or uh, flying somebody else out who's close. So I'm the only one on the West Coast on our team. So that's why I typically do a lot of the West Coast travel. But, you know. We'll kind of cross that bridge when we get there. Like I said, a lot of it depends on what ends up happening towards the beginning of the summer. But right now, if like gun to my head, I'm, I'm not going next year. Yeah, it. I don't imagine PAX will change too much. What their whole consumer like first strategy is working for them. I imagine if anything, Summer Games Fest and Play Days is what's going to expand. And maybe they'll start adding consumer days because right now 
um, I, I went to play days, so it's, it's yeah, it's all industry, which mm-hmm. is really nice. It feels like those first couple of days of Gamescom where it's it's just industry, <laughs> not open to the public. You can breathe, yeah. walk around, have a chat. Um, you're not like swarmed by 200, 300,000 people around you at all times. Um, but yeah, my I think what I would like to see is play days just expand a little bit and maybe they add a consumer day, but I really hope they keep the industry days because that's what we're missing right now with, I mean, I mean, E3 didn't even have that, but like in the U S because GDC is very developers focused, at least having mm-hmm. one event that's for industry is it's a nice to have. Yeah. And play days was great because like I said, you could have conversations. I don't know. You guys have both probably never been to any three. Uh, I know you said you haven't, Caitlin. I don't know about you, Sam. But um, there's this, like, every journalist knows the feeling when you realize your next appointment is in Kentia Hall and you have to, like, run across the entire <laughs> LA Convention Center to get there. Um, and that was kind of the hall where things went to die, but everything seemed to be, you know, every appointment seemed to be there. So not having that, you know, uh, was really nice. You know, it was so, so much more relaxed. Um, so much more down to earth. You could actually spend time talking to developers, whereas, you know, E3, and I'm assuming, you know, from just, I've never been to a Gamescom, but we did have somebody there this year and he was, I was constantly getting emails saying, I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. I'm going to be late. So I'm really hoping that play days expands, but doesn't expand too much, uh, because I want to, I wanted to keep that, you know, more down to earth focused, um, industry showcase that really allows the developers to breathe and yeah. highlight what's so great about the stuff that they have coming down. It makes our jobs easier as well. So Yeah, because, well, they don't have much room to physically grow where they're at because the, the constraints that that campus has on them. Um, so they would have to find a new event space, which they you can in LA, but I, I really yeah. liked the space that they were at this year. Um, but yeah, adding a day would probably be the easiest where it's like, okay, we just, mm-hmm. we get to keep our industry days. <laughs> And then just if you want to add some consumer, you grow that way. Yeah, it'll especially be interesting looking at specifically Gamescom and and PAX West next year, uh, given not really one of our news stories we're covering this week, but rumors swirling about Nintendo releasing the Switch successor next year. Of course, there were reports that there were behind closed doors showcases or showings of the console at Gamescom um, and not related to that piece of hardware, but Nintendo, as Joseph said, had a huge presence at PAX West next year. Um, So if there will be any sort of, especially consumer-facing hands-on time with the Switch 2 or whatever it ends up being called next year, um, I can imagine there will be a huge, just mainstream, everyday person, uh, you know, presence at PAX West and and it, if Gamescom is showing off new titles for it that will also be huge for press. So I'm I'm very interested in seeing how that shakes out. Yeah, same here. I don't even think of the Switch 2, but now that you mentioned that they're going to need some consumer facing show uh to kind of exist to generate a lot more buzz about that. I think people are going to be excited for it anyways. Um yeah. but getting that hands-on feedback from actual consumers not, you know, uh, developers or editors who use the device in very different ways sometimes um, is is huge. So I, I think what's going to be interesting is we look at PAX East, which is going to be coming up first, kind of see what that show is like, whether or not it's going to be huge. And then, you know, as we learn more about what's going on in the summer, you know, we can kind of see. I, PAX has always been a con- consumer first show, though. Um, so I don't think that's changing. 
uh, I, I just think that because Nintendo took over half of their venue, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. PAX itself necessity out of necessity just had to be had to feel a bit smaller. Uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't cool. Like there was a lot of really cool stuff there, um, but a lot of it was stuff that we already knew about. So as someone who's there to work, it wasn't necessarily meaningful, you know, in that moment. But yeah, and you have to wonder with this being Nintendo's first time. I forget what they coined it. What their what the name of their kind of presence at PAX West was this year. Oh, I forgot what it's called now too. I know Treehouse oh, is what something. they used to do at E three. Yeah, whatever they ended up naming it. I, you have to wonder if the reports about the Switch were true that this year was kind of a, a trial run. Um, getting well, like wasn't, can can we wasn't weren't they were the rumors that they were showing it at Gamescom not at PAX. Behind closed yes, doors. I'm a, yeah, exactly. Just being that if should the Switch 2 actually be revealed and be a fall 2024 product, as like you know, reports suggest that it would actually be at PAX West oh, next year, gotcha. and that this yeah. year would kind of be like a trial run for them to do the big thing next year. Actually, you know, gotcha. probably have twice as many people come by, check out, you know probably what will be one of the, the hottest like you know items of the holiday season yeah because didn't but, yeah, sure. um joseph you might know because i i was planning on going to pax but i bought my badge last minute nintendo was selling like passes for their like their booth area yeah. separate correct correct yeah it, it was completely separate we didn't we didn't actually get to go to nintendo's thing because we weren't on their press list um, okay. So we got to watch everybody else have fun with Mario Wonder while I walked around the Tekken booth for the 17th time. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, yeah, so it was wholly separate, but it was part of PAX. Like, you had to walk through the Nintendo area to get to the escalator to take you across the street to the Annex building to go to PAX. So okay. it was it was there. It was separate, but it was it was all, all together. You had a lot of people it- who went to both. Nintendo Live, that's what they called it. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for sharing your intel from PAX West 2023. And uh, thank you for making time for us to come again on this show before you head off to Iceland for uh, Eve uh, Fan Fests. Fun, 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 fun. I cannot wait. <laughs> cannot wait. <laughs> well, that, uh, again, is the intro of our show. And before we get into the main topics of this week, uh, you may be noticing or you know listening uh on a wednesday uh so that's right uh, we're changing the format of the show trying out something new and uh, we'll be releasing weekly episodes on wednesdays uh, for the foreseeable future um so we'll you'll be in our feeds once a, we'll be in your feeds <laughs> once a week not twice a week and again on wednesdays this will help us stay more topical react to news faster and hey give you something to look forward to on weekdays instead of weekends um so Speaking of, you know, being more topical, being able to react to something quicker, uh, last episode, we talked about Starfield and the lead up to that game's launch. One of the things we talked about near the end of the episode was Eurogamer not receiving review code until two days before the embargo lifted. And since that episode has published, uh, Eurogamer's review is now live. Um, So A, for that reason, we figured it was a good time to check in on that topic, but more importantly, B, get Joseph's perspective on it. Uh, Because Joseph rightfully pointed out on Twitter following that episode that it was very unfair of us to have a conversation about PR's perspective on review code distribution um, when... Of course, it you know the other party at hand there are the journalists and editors at play and planning their coverage accordingly. 
Uh, so Joseph, I wanted to, you know, open the floor to you here just to kind of, you know, close out that conversation from your perspective of how an editor and a news team, or I should say an outlets team, uh, reacts accordingly when you don't receive review code before embargo. Yeah, so it's interesting because as I was listening to that episode, and I've listened to pretty much every episode you guys have put out, that that was one of the first times where I think I think I had a physical disagreement with the way it was being framed. Um, but it was, it was refreshing, you know, when I, when I tweeted all that stuff out that you know, I know you guys pretty well, but I also know you guys are professionals and you take the, the feedback seriously. So, uh, it was one of those where I felt really comfortable being able to, you know, critique your guys' uh, mm -hmm. podcast. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that and kind of talk about it a bit further. Um, this is something that I think every outlet deals with on some level, because we always hear editors, and rightfully so, say, we never expect review code. And we don't, um, to a degree, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Uh, we, can, we, we, don't, we have to anticipate getting it, but we also have to anticipate what happens if we don't. And as someone who runs a smaller outlet that is a bit more focused, um, we deal with this pretty much with every game that we review. Uh, I truly go into every, every planning strategy that we, session that we do, assuming we're not going to get code until either the day the game releases or the day the embargo releases, or we have to go out and buy it ourselves, um, which does happen uh, a lot. I think from the perspective of, of a site like Eurogamer, it's a bit more... And I obviously can't speak for them, obviously, because I don't, I don't work for them. But from an outsider, it, it's a bit more concerning when you see that a large outlet like that is being denied access to a game that all of their colleagues have access to. Um, for reference, we got three review codes middle of August. <laughs> there is no reason why we should have got three codes and Eurogamer gets none. Or the way uh, Tom framed it in his piece, you know, kind of telling his readers what to expect, that they were sent a code, but it was sent for Digital Foundry only, and they were the only ones allowed to use it. And I don't, I don't know exactly how that conversation went down. The only ones who really do are Bethesda PR and Tom. Um, but the way it reads to me is it was accepting, getting the code was, was you know, dependent on them accepting that restriction, which Tom says he you know, had to agree to, to allow Digital Foundry to have their own coverage. Um, so we deal with this all the time. Nintendo is a perfect example. We don't get review codes for Nintendo ahead of time. If we get a code, it's usually the day the embargo lifts or the day the game launches. So we have to anticipate that and plan accordingly. Um, with MMO reviews, and I think we're, we have a very unique take on this because MMO reviews, you can't review them ahead of the release. It's just not possible. Um, so we go into most of our reviews with the game already live, with an embargo already lifted and kind of not rushing, but, you know, having to play the game a little bit differently than, the, than we would if we had a bit more time because we're racing uh, to get coverage out. Um, thankfully with us, we don't really do guides. So that entire side of the argument where when you look at when a review comes, review code comes in, oftentimes the review is not what drives a ton of the traffic. It does drive traffic, but it's the guides. It's the evergreen stuff. It's the long tail stuff that you plan a, a plan ahead with your SEO content managers, with your guides editor, with your guide writers. Um, that is what drives revenue. And I think the, the part of the discussion last night, uh, last, not, not last night, last week that was missing was how that impacts a site from an editor standpoint, because not having a guide, if you're, if your outlet depends on it, 
could mean the difference between having a freelance budget next year or not. It's, it's kind of that huge for an editor. Um, it's those kind of internal conversations you have to have um, when deciding, you know, whether to reach out, how many codes to reach out for, and then planning ahead if you get shafted is one word I would use as Eurogamer seem to have been. Uh, because that is, that's huge. Waiting 15 days for guides when your competitors have them day one is, is literally hamstringing you know, your budget for the rest of the year. And I get it, that's not PR's concern. And it shouldn't be. And I think it speaks more to a broader problem with the game's media and the way Google SEO drives it more than anything else. Um, but, I mean, yeah, that, that is, it's, it's huge. Uh, like I said, thankfully, we don't rely on guides. So we are a little bit you know, immune to that. But there's going to come a day where we're going to have to start. And we're already having those conversations behind the scenes. And I'm not looking forward to having to, you know, kind of decide, okay, do I have a feature for this game that would probably do really well? Or do I have a guide that 15 other sites have already written five days ago? You know, so I don't know if that quite answers the question. But those are just some general thoughts I've, I've, I've had since then. And, you know, this is one of those topics that's it's really nuanced. There's no right way or wrong way uh, from either side because you guys all have a job to do. We have a job to do. That job is a little bit different. You know, you guys have to mm -hmm. do what's best for your your clients. And obviously, you know, a lot of times those decisions aren't being made by PR or ex external PR. They're being made by the marketing team internally and kind of guiding you know your guys's uh, hands a little bit there too. So there's a lot. To unpack with just this one thing, but it's something that we deal with pretty much every review cycle. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's good. Like information for the teams, for developers and people at those companies to know. It's something that, like, yeah, like you mentioned, not our job, but we are often pulled into whatever limitations that are put on us. So sometimes it's like, oh, you only have X amount of review codes. So yes, we have to sit down and be like, okay, so who do we want to give review codes to? And it really should be no surprise to anybody that we would choose those who are going to give a probably a higher score based on previous games that they've played. Do they like the kind of games that our clients are putting out? That's just... I think Nick mentioned it on the last episode where it's like we could do a whole episode about like numbers and review scores and how it's sometimes it is a detriment to this industry, but we have to play the game that is yep. there in place. Um, but yeah, the Eurogamer one is just, it's such a tricky situation because it's, it's not as if it was just like, Oh, just this one outlet, like didn't get a code. Cause I don't know if the UK PR team, like, they just decided not to. It was like, it was very targeted towards UK outlets. And that was what was weird. And then just like, yeah, the responses and how like information just kept trickling out. And it, it just was such a, it was messy is what it was. Um, yeah. And you could probably tinfoil had a little bit. I didn't mean to cut you off. You could probably no, tinfoil had a little bit here and say, this is uh backlash to show the UK that they, that Activision Blizzard, Microsoft doesn't need, them because of the CWA, CMA, you know, stuff going on with that acquisition. I don't think that's true, but it's like the first yeah, thing that popped like, in my I head. Yeah, I was like, I saw that, and I was like, realize, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's a galaxy brain, like, maybe, yeah. but... You never know, though. <laughs> you, you really I mean, don't. there was... We didn't bring it up on that episode, partly because it was, you know, a, it is a bit tinfoil hatting, but 
for the nature of like what the discourse looked like, there were people speculating that because Eurogamer has recently replaced their recommended review system with a five-star review, a, a very common uh, review criteria across movies, games, etc. Um, but there was speculation that, oh, you know, the difference between a three out of five or four out of five on said star rating scale is <laughs> for some people like, or at least, you know, 20 years ago could mean like a bonus um, based on like Metacritic results. Um, yeah. So the amount of tinfoil hatting that came out from all of that was very interesting just from a like enthusiast perspective. But on that note, one thing you pointed out, Joseph, that, you know, we were leaving out was, it was the, the perspective of the outlet itself and their, their readership. Like it, you yeah. know, it is PR's right to refuse um, or not to refuse, but to, you know, to determine how codes are distributed for a game. But it's also, and we sh just should have said this outright, it was totally Eurogamer's right to let people know yeah. why there wouldn't be a review on the 31st. I mean, it's partly my own, like, you know, time spent in PR now that I've lost a bit of my perspective of, like, when I used to, you know, check... I still check Game Informer every day, but it's a lot different than when I was checking it when I was 15 every day. And when I would check it and I would see a review for a certain game on IGN and it wouldn't be on Game Informer, I would search the where is the blank review that sometimes these mm -hmm. outlets put out when they can't hit an embargo. Um, and now, because I know the inner workings of the industry so much more, I don't go seeking them out as much. But those were really valuable and insightful to me when I had, you know, less... <laughs> uh, understanding of how code distribution worked and wanted to know why I couldn't re read my favorite reviewer's take on a game I was looking forward to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the way we we framed Eurogamer's, uh, you know, summary of the situation was also not fair. I, I can see how, and I was talking to Quinn about this uh, last, earlier, last week, yeah. Um, it was very tongue-in-cheek, you know, but yeah. it didn't come across <laughs> that way. And as someone who deals with this, you know, daily, it's something I have to think about whenever we have a big game coming out. Like we, um, we used to do those kind of articles, whereas our X review, we don't do it as often anymore because our readers don't expect it unless it's a huge game. So like if we didn't get Starfield code and we weren't going to have a review in progress or review live the day of embargo, we would have had an article that day explaining. We probably wouldn't have had something beforehand we would have had something that day, you know, directing people to other people's reviews and tell them to come back and read ours when it's ready. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was definitely one of those uh, situations where the tongue in cheek nature was lost on someone like me who, again, this could mean the difference between uh, paying, a, being able to pay a freelancer, you know, to write articles for us in a month or not. Um, and again, a lot of that is because of how Google works. This is, the nature of games industry, games media, or content across the internet nowadays, where we all kind of have to bow to the altar of SEO. And it's a shame, but it is what it is. Um, I don't know if you guys do a lot of PR pushes around holiday times, like Black Friday, you know, roundups and stuff like that. But for some sites, mm -hmm. the traffic alone from that sets their entire budget for the next year. I mean, that's how much guides and stuff mean to, to sites now. So for me, the way I was reading that situation, it was less about having the review, though that's important. It was more about missing out on all the potential traffic for guides for a reason that didn't seem to be that explained or seemed to be arbitrary. Again, you can tinfoil hat all you want. And um, 
I'm one of those people that hates review scores with a passion. So uh, <laughs> I would love to see them go away as well, but I have to play the game too. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I will say is a lot of times, and I know you guys, when you, when you distribute codes, you have to think about it from the standpoint of who's going to give this, you know, positive review, you know, obviously, you know, that's part of the game. But from our standpoint, when we look at who's going to write about the game, score is the last thing we think of. I don't care whether this is someone that I think is going to give a low score or a high score. Is this someone who's going to provide expertise, feedback, uh, critique, and be fair and balanced with it as well? And the score is ultimately secondary. One of the first things I did when I took over the site actually was completely overhaul how we scored games. Because it was so, I know this is so, sort of off topic, but related. Uh, it was so arbitrary to begin with. Whereas now, if you look at our review score policy, it's based on how you would describe the game to a friend. Would you call this game a masterpiece? It's a 10. Would you call it, you know, fantastic? It's a six or a seven or whatever it is in our score, our scales. So yeah, <laughs> it's, there's, there's a lot, like I said, to this particular issue with the industry. And it's not something that one thing is going to fix. Uh, it's, it's unfortunately Google. That's that, that's the end all be all of everything. <laughs> so even like this week, and this is something IGN has done for the past couple months now, if not longer, but I, I understand why again, kind of playing the game, uh, payday three, doesn't come out for another couple days. Um, but last week, Payday 3 Review in Progress was up on IGN because the open beta is available. And probably not a whole lot of their sites are, you know, putting out something titled that way. It's probably going to be Payday 3 Open Beta Impressions or if yeah. covering it at all. Um, but of course, part of the reason for that is with the SEO game of that Payday 3 review, even if it says in progress headline, now exists in the Google metadata for much longer exactly. than other sites. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it's just interesting. Like, like you said, Joseph, when the difference between having that guide day of or 14 days later can mean the difference between a freelance budget, like being able to explain that to your readers. And also it's good for us for as PR people to know, to, you know, be able to take that back to mm -hmm. our clients and also be able to talk freely, openly, and honestly with the journalists as well, because, you know, we'll be, whether it's just whatever happens with that one game will happen with that one game. But we obviously want to keep working together on not just that one client's games, but you know, all of our other clients games to come. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think this industry is one built on relationships and make, making sure that if something like that happens, the relationship doesn't break down um, is key. So if, if you guys, for instance, if we had to do, if there was a, a world of Warcraft preview coming up that we weren't invited to, I may be miffed, but I would understand that we may not necessarily fit the KPI strategy or whatever that you guys have to work with. But knowing, you know, that there's something else coming up or there is a reason why we weren't included goes a long way versus just feeling, you know, mm -hmm. as though we weren't considered for something like that. I know that's a weird example, but it's it's one that pops in my mind whenever that that conversation uh, comes up because, like I said, I mean, the relationships are kind of the most important aspect in my mind here between us and PR. You know, I consider a lot of PR members friends, uh, having been in this industry since 2009. Uh, but there are times where that friendship kind of takes a backseat because we're both professionals. And um, having that professional courtesy to at least explain, you know, what's going on from both yeah. sides. You know, me explain why I need Xcodes. And I actually got this from your guys' podcast episode with Tam, 
I now ask for multiple codes and I explain what I'm going to use them all for. Whereas before, I didn't think we would ever get more than one, so I didn't even try. Um, so having that open relationship goes both ways. It's both on the editor side, but it's also on the PR side. And I know a lot of times with this industry being so secretive, companies don't want to talk about these things. But having <laughs> that relationship with the PR professional to be able to say, hey, you know, this is why, this is probably why the, the company didn't allocate it goes a long way to, to just feeling, you know, as though we're being, I don't know if left out's the right word, but like right phrase, but uh, it goes a long way to soothing that relationship over. Yeah. And I, like, you mentioned World of Warcraft as an example. So I'm continuing on that. Like if you were not part of something or if you're like, oh, this is coming up, like I want you to be able to come to me and be like, hey, like we want to be a part of this. Like, and like you said, like always ask for, like even if you didn't think that you're going to get it, like we want you guys to come to us and ask us because sometimes yeah. it's like, oh, I've got to manage like hundreds of journalists and however many like mm -hmm. outlets. And it's like, sometimes it's like, maybe it's just like forgot or like we're focusing on these ones because we haven't worked with these people in a while. But as soon as someone's like, oh, I'm really interested in this, it's like, oh, okay. Well, if they're really interested, like let's, let's add them. Like we can see if we can like make space, but Yes. Sometimes it's just like, oh, like we only have so many keys or so many slots for something because like devs have only have so many hours to give us. And we unfortunately, yeah, people just feel like they get left out and we don't like that. Yeah. But it's just it's like we I don't have a magic wand to give everybody everybody access for every single thing. I will say uh, as someone who works with just myriad PR companies uh, across the globe. Triple Point is one of those few out, a few PR companies that when something like that happens, I feel very comfortable talking to you guys about it. Um, because we do so much work together, you guys mm -hmm. rep so many MMOs that are important to our site. And this has happened where there have been World of Warcraft events, You know, just using that example again, that we weren't part of. And I was able to go to Gentry and, and say, you know, What's going on? Is there something coming up that we can we can think about? And uh, those conversations were always very pleasant. Um, I think one thing too that that you guys are doing really well with this podcast in particular is it pulls the veil back a little bit on how reviews are handled, how PR is handled from this side of things. Like you mentioned, there's only so many codes. I think there's this misconception that you can just create an Excel list and mm -hmm. there's just infinite codes, and that's not true. <laughs> Um, yeah. So being able to have that insight and that information from your guys' perspective is really helpful, especially to young editors, young writers who are just getting into this industry, but also content creators who may not necessarily know how this entire side of the the, the aisle works. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and even like if you think a game, if it's like months out, don't be afraid to like tell us if you're interested because sometimes like that process for getting codes really is like we are giving a list of who we want way far in advance because like it has to go through multiple review processes and like whoever is generating those it has to go to a certain team that makes those codes like especially with console codes they take so long to get because they have to go and pay xbox or nintendo and playstation for a certain number of codes so they don't just pay for like an infinite number they have to have like the exact number of codes pc is really easy for people to generate so like if you want a code and it's a short turnaround, if you can do PC, ask for a PC code that is easier on us and our clients because mm -hmm. we generally get more of those um, because I don't think, I think they're like free or it's just much cheaper for them to get those codes. Um, 
Just some well, food, just some food for very, thought. <laughs> yeah. This was a very enriching conversation, Joseph. Thank you again for your perspective here on the Starfield re- review conversation. Um, but of course, that was, you know, Starfield dominated the news headlines in gaming for about two weeks. Uh, until yeah. last week, uh, Unity uh, became the talk of the gaming headlines <laughs> town with the runtime fee announcement. Uh, so with this episode coming out, it'll be about a week and a day ago. So Tuesday morning, that would have been the 12th. Uh, I'm reading from Brendan Sinclair at gamesindustry.biz. Um, on the 12th, Unity decided to introduce its new runtime fee, which Unity developers of a certain size will have to pay every time their game is installed on a new device after January 1st, 2024. Um, so the fee is... 20 cents that will be the fee per install for small developers unity personal subscribers whose games brought in two hundred thousand dollars in the past year and have two hundred thousand lifetime installs to date or if you're an enterprise client you will be charged a cent um a, a cent fee per install for large developers whose games brought in one million dollars in the past year and have lifetime sales of one million or more um that you know was that, but of course the uh, confusion spilled out from there uh, because the definition of what an install was, when an install would be counted, when it would not be counted, just became more and more confusing, honestly, the more answers we get. Um, This is from This Week in Business. Uh, It was kind of a nice like end of the week summary of all the confusion that spilled out. So I will continue reading from Brendan. Um, So those fees may not sound like a lot, and a developer just had to pay the fee each time they sold a $60 game. It wouldn't be. But there are problems because these charges are based on game installs, not sales, and Unity has not done a great job communicating what's going on here. The initial FAQ on the fee stated, an install is defined as the installation and initialization process of an end user's device. Um, however, Games Drive has followed up to ask if that would include demos. And the spokesperson said, no demos, trials, game bundles, and giveaways like the Humble Bundle count as installs. But then a representative also Lex week said, if an early access beta or a demo of the full game, then yes, it will be counted as an install. Um, so we can... And, you know, go back and forth on all the things that have come out and the confusion that has ensued. I, I will say at the time of recording, Unity has said that, quote, we have heard you. We apologize for the confusion and angst the runtime fee policy we announced on Tuesday caused. We are listening, talking to our team members, community c- customers and partners, and we'll be making changes to the policy. We will share an update in a couple of days. Um, so oh, with that being said, who who knows what exactly that update will be by the time this episode comes out, which is only going to be a day or two from now. Um, so we don't need to do a whole lot of speculating, but it's more so like, <laughs> how did this go so wrong? <laughs> I feel like all they're missing with their tw- Twitter post, I'm still going to say Twitter, is a ukulele. <laughs> <laughs> or an iPhone Any, notes, if anybody like, get, If anybody gets that <laughs> reference, they'll get it. Because... Yeah. Oh, I would have paid bet money that the we have heard you was going to come out and it did. It's just succession. Tom Wom's games. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. here for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It's just a bunch of empty words at this point. I mean, we can speculate, but like uh, it's so frustrating to just see how this is all unfolded. And the fact that like, I think no matter what Unity comes back with, and they're not going to roll it back completely. It'll be less, but they're, they're hurting for money. But what they've done is just broken their trust with everybody they've worked with. And yeah. that is really unfortunate. And it's going to, 
it's really going to have a triple effect in the industry of like what's going to happen because there's going to be games now that are never going to come out. Um, Unity was such a great entry point for a lot of developers who couldn't afford mm-hmm. the Unreal or Godot. Godot, I'm is that correct? One or something Doe, like that. Like that yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Games are going to be delayed. Yeah. Canceled. Pulled. A lot of developers probably can't afford to now port their games over to something like Unreal. Um, I know there's some grants that they can apply to, but at the end of the day, Unity has just lost trust in the entire industry. And it's also showing other companies that they can do something similar, probably. Or they're watching yeah. to see what Unity does. And if it ends up like, okay, if you make a game in Unity, you're going to have in-game ads, spyware, what what has it. It's just, it's not going to be the same. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of changes that I'll, most of us are going to be unhappy about. I don't. I don't know. I. I, I think the only thing missing there besides the ukulele was the <laughs> South Park. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> you know? Um, this shouldn't be shocking to anybody that a company run by the same guy who wanted who floated the idea of charging FPS players a dollar to reload each of their, their weapons each time was doing something like this or, or floating this idea. Um, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you completely, Caitlin. Like if regardless of what they do or what these changes they're going to make are, are, are um, any trust in unity is completely gone, completely gone. I mean, this has in many developers minds probably irrevocably changed their entire development path. Um, like you said, some games may never come out. Uh, some games may, may get pulled especially games that have existed on, you know, platforms for years who aren't making money anymore, but will still be required to uh, pay, you know, this install fee. Um, There was so much that was like, just not thought through as well. I think Rami had an amazing tweet uh, about how this could be abused by, uh, you know, gamers who want to financially stress a, a, a company by just uninstalling and reinstalling the game multiple times. I mean, th- that wasn't thought out at all. How do you differentiate between a code that was given in a humble bundle and one that was bought on the store? Um, there was Game Pass. Think about that. And I, I guarantee you, Apple, Microsoft, and all of them are not happy to hear that they're going to start footing the bill for that too. Um, it's, yep. it's, it's a failure on multiple fronts. And it all kind of starts with uh, the, the people at top. You know, this was... Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys remember last year or early this year, whenever it was, the whole Dungeons and Dragons OGR thing. This yes. was giving me shades of that, where this this thing was rolled out with no real consideration for how it will actually affect the users who are using this thing day in and day out, the companies that use it day in and day out, but how it affects shareholders. And Unity has to pay mm-hmm. for Weta somehow, I get it, but uh, this was not the way. And regardless of what they do, like their brand, you know, trust is just shattered. You know, we have a lot of MMOs that we we write about that use Unity because you, like you said, Caitlin, it's a good entry point. And mm-hmm. I'm starting to wonder whether those MMOs will ever see the light of day now because, you know, with an MMO, you're hoping for hundreds of thousands of installs to have a vibrant player base to keep the game alive for years and years and years. 
And what happens if that doesn't translate to dollars, but you still have to pay the runtime fee or the install fee or whatever ends up being? That right there is confusion. Is it because of the runtime being distributed or is it because it's installed? Nothing was clearly explained. This was a communication debacle on every front. I'm sure as PR people, you guys are cringing. It's just, how can we learn to not do this? (laughs) It just, it. It looks like PR didn't even take a look at it. Like it was like the shareholders drafted this up and sent it out on their own and then just shocked everybody. Cause there's, I, I don't, I don't know what PR person would look at that statement and not have 10,000 follow-up questions and notes and edits of like, this is unclear. You cannot send this out. It's going to cause chaos. Like I'm, I'm not sure who on their team decided to put this out. It's really unfortunate that this is where we're at. It's, they're going to, it's, yeah. <laughs> I just try not to like go on a rampage of complaining about the statement and what Unity is doing to like all these developers because it's just, it's just really shitty at the end of the day. To return to like a, a running theme between our last topic and this one, like relationships are everything and mm-hmm. Unity, while yeah, huge, massive games are built on Unity, also one of, You know, it's the recommended starting point for a lot of people interested in game dev. One of my favorite YouTubers, Mark Brown, Game Maker's Toolkit, is doing a whole series about how he's making his first game on Unity. And then meanwhile, at certain chapter points, he's breaking out tutorials on what he's learned along the way. And he's gone out and released a statement. It's like, I don't know if any of this work I put in is going to be valuable for anybody anymore because clearly this engine is now being positioned as something that's not meant for small time small time developers um just to follow up on some of the points you know joseph and caitlin brought up i found uh, rami ismail's tweet um, about all of the companies and parties affected uh, by the unity change demos are now risky to devs drm free mm-hmm. games are now risky to devs bundles giveaways updates um you know just think about like you know, uninstalling your game because uh, like the the new update didn't clear, so you got to reinstall it. How is that counted? That's something he keeps reiterating, rightfully so, is the clarity and how these fee installs are going to be counted is very much opaque. Uh, and even so much that Jason Trier was um, reporting today that it might be user-reported, which also sounds like a bad idea because another point Rami Ismail made is that this makes devs susceptible to harassment and targeting. Like, rather than a review bombing campaign, is there an install bombing campaign? Um, mm-hmm. It's all it's all really scary. And even the clarity around like how our subscription... So, like of course, since his tweet, um, they clarified that if you're included in a subscription service, uh, you're not on the hook. Um, but Unity uh, said to Axios that uh, developers would not be on the hook as the fees are charged to distributors, which in the Game Pass example would be Microsoft. But then what does that do to Microsoft's incentive to pick certain games to be included as new titles on Game Pass? It's just <laughs> like Alice is falling down the, the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like no matter which layer of the onion peel you peel back, there's not an answer you want to hear or one that's, uh, you know, even makes sense. Yeah. The, the one thing that I, I kept coming back to is actually two things. So with some game updates, you know, players will uninstall the game and reinstall the game when the update comes. That's pretty normal. But what happens when an update is so comprehensive, it has to effectively reinstall the whole game. Is that now then counted as a separate install? What happens if you own the game and you install it across multiple devices, like a ROG Ally, a Steam Deck, a PC for your kid? Um, 
a, an extra console in your house. You know, are all of those count? Even though it's technically the same code, are all of those installs then counted uh, against the developer? There's there's so much here that is just, like I said, it, it just was not thought through, or these questions were not being asked and adequately answered, or it's an example of a company who doesn't want some of the money. They want all of the money and don't care how they get it. Again, returning to relationships, like it is, I mean, it isn't that surprising given the outcome of this, that there there should have been some sort of developer or like, you know, trusted, um, like what's the word I'm looking for? Like the justice league or whatever of, of, you know, 50 developers they have within the you, that they can then survey and talk to yeah, about these yeah. things. That way, at the very least, if you're going to come out with an FAQ on Tuesday with this, that the answers on it make sense and are adequate, which they weren't. That's like one of the step one, 101 failures of the the PR mess here. What were you going to mm-hmm. say, Caitlin? Oh, I was like, it like it got even messier. I think this was this weekend or today it was today published by games industry depth is that like unity also in the limitations of who this would affect said like if the game was part of like for charity that they're like they wouldn't have fees um oh, and so a dev asked they had games um that were for planned parenthood and a game that was for children's hospitals and unity told them that they are not valid charities so (laughs) just to like add more like mess to this it's unity is now deciding what classifies as a charity and what doesn't and apparently planned parenthood oh and it was mott's children's hospital in michigan which saved my life as a kid by the way not would valid you, would you charities. Consider that hospital a political group, Caitlin, as I believe nope. uh, you did. Pretty described sure it. that's yeah. They called it a political group. Um, nope, that would just be a children's hospital and one of the best in the country. Yeah, yeah, nothing shocking. political about it. I've had I've had cousins who have been there, you know, and, and gotten help there. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, this is what happens again when you want to and you have a company that doesn't want some of the money, wants all of the money, and has nobody they're at the ground level making these decisions, no developers, no gaming, you know, execs or industry, you know, insiders or people who are going to actually be affected by this helping just the people who are going to be lined in their pockets. That's all they saw. Yeah. It's dollar just, signs. Didn't care how it came out. It just proves that like they never really cared who their user base was because unity was always for like those small developers. It's, it's a great mm-hmm. entry tool. And this just shows that like, they never really cared about them. They just were waiting until, they got to the point where they could exploit them for money to try and grow to appease shareholders. Yeah. yeah and, the, and the talking point they keep going back to about um, 90% of users not being affected um, definitely is factoring in all of the hobbyists and enthusiasts that are using Unity to one day hope to use it to make a living or at least have you know some sort of dream of game dev. But all of yeah. the, the small-time developers that are affected by this I mean, aggro crab. There's a great Polygon piece that I would recommend everyone go check out. Um, just recounting all of the developers, discussing how this will change their, as Joseph said, their plans for years to come. Um, the developers of Slay, Slay the Spire put out, I mean, I, I hate laughing at this situation, but they put out one of the most uh, memorable statements last week um, saying that their game that they've been making for years now, they're going to have to greatly reevaluate um whether they continue with Unity or decide to port it to a new engine, and if so, it'll 
add years to the development timeline. And at the very end of the statement, it says, and we never put out statements. This is yeah. this shows how badly you <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> yeah, that was it was mega crit. Thank you. I like I had just pulled up the statement too. I was gonna also call. Yeah, that what was the out. exact it's, quote? I think I was close. It, there you at the you end. were very close. It says we have never made a public statement before. This is how badly you fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, we, we keep talking about the stock price. I, I will pull up um, from Super Juiced, uh, which is a newsletter I would recommend everybody subscribe to um, just to get a read on kind of the industry's latest news at the moment. Um, following the initial news, a Unity shares price increased 5% on the news to almost $40 a share. Um, however, uh, at the time of the newsletter's writing, which would have been only two days later on Thursday, um, it had dropped again. Um to uh, under $36 a share, um, a low. So like even this, uh, you know, <laughs> all ill-fated plans, uh, you know, when you when you throw your relationships in the trash, like um, even <laughs> the stockholders are not going to be happy. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I think they have to pay for Weta workshop somehow. This was the way to do it <laughs> in their minds, but <sighs> I don't, I don't know. We're, it's going to be interesting. We, there's a local IGDA chapter out here, um, and I go to their meetings every once in a while. I should have gone to the last one because the last one was the same day this announcement went down because oh, wow. every single developer there uses Unity as their, their platform. Um, so we may have something coming up just even though this is hopefully going to be resolved this week or at least you know have some sort of re resolution that isn't going to make anybody happy, but maybe the story will go away, which is all Unity probably wants at this point. Yeah. Um, we're probably going to have something talking to developers uh, here locally about you know how this affects them, how this affects their their development cycles, because you know, like like Caitlin said, like like I said, you know, this is going to hamstring so many developers. It's going to cancel games. It's going to cause developers to switch you know careers you know, in some instances where this was their, their way to do what they always dreamed of, but they can't afford the unreal fee. Now, uh, Godot is a, is a good alternative, but it's not as ubiquitous as unreal or as, as unity was. Um, so Godot might see some pickup, but even then I don't think it's going to be the, the cure-all that developers are going to want. So, yeah. And, and like you said earlier, Joseph, just no matter what the ultimate outcome is here, just the trust is completely obliterated yeah, um and uh to to think you know one of the, the other big things that affected and scared so many developers here rightfully so and is still scaring them is that this isn't you know while it is going to go in place on january 1st 2024 it is for not games releasing after that it is for games right. made on unity um and i mean that list includes thousands and um mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands pokemon go is made on unity that's a, and then the free-to-play element is a whole nother like that whole monetization structure is completely just miffed by uh, by this you know runtime fee um so no matter you know what happens just the thought of this company that powers and or at least in some way made my game possible can completely change the way um my company and my my life is funded uh is a better reason than ever to run for the hills for something else and and it's a shame because like you said it was the yeah. best option for years 
well, I see some class action <laughs> lawsuits. Yeah, let's and unless anybody has any other unity thoughts or uh, to share, we can move on to a bit more exciting uh, and fun news that came from last week, which was showcases from Sony and Nintendo. Uh, State of Play and a Direct, respectively, happened both on a shared date on the 14th, which was, I'm sure, Joseph shaking his head, yeah, not fun for anybody working <laughs> in games media, um, but yeah. at least... I know my brother and I had a, a fun lunch break. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, work notwithstanding, uh, Joseph, what were your highlights from these showcases? What trailers impressed you? What games are you excited for? There is only a single game out of the entire two showcases that I care about. And that was Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Like that trailer gave me life. And I had I was <laughs> jet lagged because I had just got back into town the <laughs> night before. <laughs> Uh, from an event and that trailer was oh it was so good like, we're seeing it on the screen right now and i was like transported back to 1997 joseph um playing final <laughs> fantasy the entire summer because it's 100 degrees in vegas so why would anybody live here um <laughs> and, like there was so much eye candy you get junon you get the the open world areas that we're kind of expecting now that we're out of midgard um seeing like these iconic characters that I grew up with just fully realized on, you know, this, this hardware like Kate Sith and, and Vincent. And if Matt Mercer is voicing Vincent, I think we should just let him voice everybody at this point. <laughs> um, yeah. That trailer was good. Was very, very good. I cannot, I, cannot wait. And yeah, I could, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the trailer was so good that I left that showcase really wanting to play Final Fantasy because I have not played it. And I probably have said on this podcast before <laughs> that I would. <laughs> but like, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going, I'm going to go back and play Final Fantasy seven. The, was it remake was the first one of remake, this like yeah. new like trilogy so that yeah. I can play rebirth because I watched that trailer and I was like, I don't have any idea what is happening but it got me so hype and it looked so good. And I was like, I don't, yeah. I don't, I have no idea what's going on. My favorite part was, is it cloud was on the segue? <laughs> yes. Is that oh, cloud? The, uh, okay. the yes. Cool. <laughs> I, I've heard some names and I'm like, I know who Sephiroth is or like, I've seen mm -hmm. his character. Um, but yeah, for some reason the segue just took me out and I was like, I know nothing about this game. <laughs> It has fantasy yeah. in the name. I was like, but they're in a city and he's just riding a silly little Segway with a giant sword on his back. And I don't know why that's what like, that's what got me. I was like, this is funny. Cause then it went right back to like a really serious like fight scene or something like that. And I was like, this is cool. The poster for it was really like, it looked beautiful. It's evocative Again, for sure. Yeah. I don't, I'm like, I don't know anything about it, but I, I think I'm sold. And so We'll so see. much eye candy in this trailer. S someone, <laughs> Sam, you have to hold me accountable and like every podcast ask if I've finally played remake. Caitlin felt <laughs> added in the group chat, as the kids say, because I, I was we, we were drafting the outline for this episode. And I was like, Joseph, how would you mm -hmm. recommend Final Fantasy to someone who's never played the series before? And Caitlin was like, is this question just directed at me? And I said, yeah, it is. So I, I would actually say this is probably a good starting point, though. Um, I just reviewed early this summer, probably the best starting point, which was Final Fantasy 16. Um, mm. 
Okay. So one of the major differences is how the battle system works. Uh, Final Fantasy VII still kind of, it's active combat, but it's not, if that makes any sense. It uses, mm-hmm. it tries to evoke the old turn-based action time battle system they have in the original seven. So a lot of your sword strikes, a lot of your main attacks are going to be action combat, but then to use things like items and use, uh, you know, spells and abilities, that's all based on a gauge that you build up through combat, which is how, how, you know, it worked in the original game where your turn came when your active time gauge, you know, filled up. So it's this really cool blend of the old and the new 16 is just straight up action combat. If you like, you know, modern RPGs, 16 mm-hmm. is a good starting point. Uh, mm. I will say, have you played a Kingdom Hearts? <laughs> no. Oh, man. I was just telling Pain. someone this weekend, I was like, I've got some major gaps in my gaming history. And I was like, Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts. I kid you not. I think this was two days ago I said that. <sighs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be allowed to be on this podcast. <laughs> That's okay. I've never played Mass Effect. so And I run a site all about RPGs. So. <laughs> I've only played the first one. Okay, so we're 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 kindred so, there a little bit. So little bit. the reason why I bring up Kingdom Hearts is the same director from Kingdom Hearts on this game, and Kingdom Hearts is known for its outrageously convoluted story. Um, this version of Final Fantasy VII doesn't quite a hundred percent follow the same story as the original, and it has a lot of those Nomura flares where it's just nonsensical at times, and you just got to go with it. So. Uh, even when you play remake, there are going to be things that just don't make any sense. Just understand Nomura's doing a Kingdom Hearts inside of Final Fantasy and you'll be fine. <laughs> so like Kingdom Hearts is one of my favorite series of all time. Like I was oh. a grown man crying at the end of Kingdom Hearts 3 when I reviewed it back when it released in like 2015 or whatever. And I, I said to my 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 wife at the time, I was like, you, your husband is literally sitting there crying about a game that has Mickey Mouse in it. So <laughs> that's how much that game means to me. And Final <laughs> Fantasy 7 is like right there with it. So... Okay. Yeah, those, I was going I to. I always think of liken. those two. Oh, you got it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Was, no, it's fine. I was going to say I always think of those two like similar because there's so many entries in them, and like they are confusing because people are like, "Oh, you can play in this order, or you can play this one first, and then this one, and then Kingdom Hearts had like the two point fives and four point twos. Yeah. I was like, I, final chapter. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. Nine I, something. Yeah. It got to the point where I was like, I think I'm, it's been too long. I can't play the the series now. All I was going to say was I, as someone who had only played my only exposure to Final Fantasy was the Kingdom Hearts titles. Um, I, I've followed Final Fantasy for years. My brother played through 13 and I watched him play that growing up. And, um, we also dabbled with 10, but I don't think we had the patience for turn-based games. Um, then, uh, but all this goes to say is I uh, popped into Final, C7, Final Fantasy VII Remake, uh, and A, I mean, it just looks phenomenal, like Joseph was pointing about this trailer, even the you know the first part of this trilogy, or at least supposed trilogy, um, just, I mean, the graphics are phenomenal. Final Fantasy, I feel like, has always pushed um, the front that way. Um, but also, it, it's a, you know... For those unfamiliar, Final Fantasy games all stand by their own. So, like remake, you know, you don't yeah. need to know Final Fantasy one through six, and and even you don't. Uh, I I don't want to get into too much, but y- there are some. You know, the the remake and the title is a bit tongue in cheek. Um, and of yeah. course, I I'm sure, like as Joseph would say, like him having played Final Fantasy seven enhances probably your your love of the remakes mm-hmm. even more but even as somebody who didn't have much familiar, familiarity other than the like iconography of seven 
Um, I still found the story really cool and kind of the meta, like the Nomura, like you said, the Kingdom Hearts weirdness of it um, to be really cool. I, th- I think, Caitlin, you'll get a kick out of it, even if like, you know, like me, you've not played the original seven. Yeah. So for me, like the original seven, um, that was my summer game in 97. I was I had just turned 10. My dad had bought me a PlayStation out of the back of someone's car, like right around the corner from the Air Force Base we lived on. And Final Fantasy VII was one of the games he bought with it. And I think I had the time clock in Final Fantasy VII maxed out before I even hit disc two. That's how much I played. Because I also didn't know how like multiple disc games back then were because it was one of the first (laughs) that did it, right? So I didn't know that you had to put in the next disc. So I just, even though it actually tells you, I was was dumb. So I literally (laughs) ran around the open world and just leveled all my characters up, maxed out the time clock at 99 hours and 99 minutes before I even got to the next part of the game. Um, this is a series that like, like I said, holds a lot of like sentimental value for me and seven remake is a great entry point. Um, actually you have a steam deck if I remember correctly, Caitlin. So that's like a perfect place to play it too. It it runs relatively well there. I actually have it loaded up on mine (laughs) for the plane ride tomorrow. Um, <laughs> among other games, like I can't stop playing Baldur's Gate, but that's a different discussion. Uh, Same. God. Yeah. So uh, I, yeah, for someone who's never played a Final Fantasy game, this is a good starting point. 14 is also a really good starting point, and it's probably one of the best games being made nowadays. So, okay. I, I actually lied. I, uh, not purposefully, but uh, I did, re- I did remember. I was like, wait, I, did play a Final Fantasy game that came out in 2003 on the GameCube called Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles. Crystal Chronicles, <laughs> yes. Nice. That was a good one, too. It was great. Was it? Okay, I was like, I just remember yeah. being in like a little caravan, and it had like happy music, and it was cute. Mm-hmm. Um, so, t- I guess technically I have played Final Fantasy, but I played a spinoff. <laughs> it's time to welcome you back. Um, Joseph, my yeah. last Final Fantasy seven. I, I believe Square has said after Remake came out that it would be three parts. Um, yeah, it's and a three part. As we talked about, made fun with Kingdom Hearts. Nomura loves his his weird titles. What's your prediction for what the third part is called? Final Fantasy 2.9 Remix <laughs> something. <laughs> Probably has like 17 zippers as well, you know. <laughs> going to see Sora like at some point. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Kingdom Hearts 4 is actually secretly Final oh Fantasy 7 Part 3. <laughs> right? What if? What if? <laughs> uh, in closing, uh, Caitlin, uh, did you have any highlights from the PlayStation or Nintendo showcase? What was your favorite thing shown between the two of them? Um, I'm really excited for Luigi's Mansion 2. I am secretly hoping because it has like a, was it a June or July, like next summer release date. And that's pretty far for a remake of a, or a remaster. It's not a remake. It's a remaster of like the 3DS game. I'm secretly hoping they're going to announce Luigi's Mansion 1 remake and release them together. This is, I don't know, just give me the cloud mask. I was also expecting Twilight Princess for every single Nintendo Direct. So I'm just talking out my ass at this point. They should. (laughs) And Wind Waker. Just like give me all the bundles of all my favorite (laughs) games. But... I really liked Luigi's Mansion. Loved seeing more Spider-Man 2. I just I mm. cannot wait for that game. It's going to be my whole personality. Um, but there was actually a game I did want to call out that I I read over the weekend. Rebecca Valentine from IGN talked about it, and it wasn't actually part of the Nintendo Direct we watched, 
but it was part of Nintendo Direct Japan. Interesting. Um, and it's a game called Stray Children. Yes, it's very interesting. And I like she mentions in the article that it's made by a developer called Onion Games. They said it's going to be localized and released outside Japan. But let me give you like a little blurb of what it's called or what it's about. So Stray Children is a game follows a young boy who is sucked into a TV into a world made up entirely of children where he goes on a strange adventure. Um, he's some like he's interacting with some like monsters. It kind of it looks like Undertale. There we go. Oh, thanks, Ryan. I was. <laughs> oh my gosh just working some magic yeah i really liked the art style it's super cute the the trailers in japanese as you can see like the subtitles are but yeah they said it it will be released elsewhere um like worldwide on the nintendo switch and i really liked oh that gosh. so i'm sad it wasn't in our direct yeah yeah but i'm really glad that rebecca saw it and she wrote about it just really like, cool thanks know. for the shout cute vibes i was of course today years old when i learned that um i j- just figured nintendo translated their directs for each region i, I guess i should have known that of course japan would have games that we didn't have but um cool well i'm excited for that to get localized um yeah. the only yeah, other was, ones we have that was kind of it yeah the only ones we haven't talked about that i would highlight is uh princess peach showtime um which looks yes. like a kind of I wonder if there's any shared developer DNA there between that and Kirby in the Forgotten Land. Between it's the first the, thing I thought of too, the costumes, the kind of like f- controlled 3D perspective, um, the 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 sword fighting, especially <laughs> I love seeing yeah. Kirby with a sword. It's and like, it turns out I love seeing Peach with a sword, <laughs> like the 2.5D or something like 3D. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, because it's kind of a side-scroller. Oh, I forgot. Yes, this looks cute. And it's cool seeing Peach get her own game uh, so many years after Super Princess Peach on the DS, which I know has not mm-hmm. aged gracefully, considering that like her emotions and her crying um, were the were the super her superpower. Um, this looks a lot more empowering, <laughs> to put it nicely. Um, <sighs> the last other Nintendo highlight, uh, one from my childhood that I'm very happy to see back, is Mario versus Donkey Kong. Um, yeah, I love that game on the Game Boy Advance. I love Donkey Kong 94 on the Game Boy and uh, seeing any sort of, uh, you know, revival of that gameplay style, just very bite sized puzzles. Perfect for a handheld. There's a co-op mode added that I'm excited to try out with my partner. And yeah, I mean, rumors abound that the Switch 2 is coming out in fall 2024. And if this is like the last software year of the switch coming up the next 12 months. Like it might be a lot of remakes and remasters as, as Caitlin pointed out with Luigi's mansion too, but like, I'm not complaining. I've missed a lot of these games or I'm nostalgic to hop back in. Yeah. yeah. I also forgot about another one that I have to talk about, which is paper Mario, the thousand year door remake. I, I'm so <laughs> excited. One of my favorite GameCube games. I just totally forgot about it. My brain spaced and like one of the funniest Mario games too. I really hope they yeah they bring back that snark and attitude that was in the original <laughs> and it just oh it looks good for those watching the video podcast you're seeing some some of the trailers it just goes I'm just, to show I'm like really happy you know, for like all the mario games that we're getting right now i know it's we're not getting yeah. another mario odyssey or mario galaxy which come on nintendo just just do just 
break your own rule and give me another sequel to Mario Galaxy, please. But I'm, I'm here for the it Mario renaissance that we're in. It just goes to say that show that like all those, what would that have been Gen 6 games um, that chose to not do a realistic art style? Like, we, I mean, eventually I it will happen. I'm going to keep saying until it happens, like Wind Waker, when that gets ported to, you know, the Switch or paper, uh, Thousand Year Door, like these cell shaded or scrapbooky art styles just age so well. And then when brought up with that HD sheen, like, oh, good gracious, I, mm-hmm. I want it. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, do you have any love for these games? Yeah. I mean, the only other one that I was really, I was tongue in cheek with the Final Fantasy VII being the only <laughs> game I cared about, though, if I'm being honest, it probably is. Uh, Super Mario RPG Remake is mm. also mm-hmm. uh, one that I played back when I was in like elementary school, the original Super Mario uh, RPG. And this is one of those games that I never finished because I was just too young to, to really get it. Uh, but I know this holds a place of significance among so many of my peers about my age, because this for a lot of people was the first true RPG that we played, you know, back in the day you had your final fantasies. This was, you know, very influenced by final fantasy back then. Um, a lot of people came from Chrono Trigger to play this, or they played this and then played Chrono Trigger, which is the greatest RPG made in that generation. Um, that is one that that definitely has captured my attention as someone who wants to go back and, and actually finish it this time. I know my older brother, who actually wrote up our recap article for us, he's a massive Nintendo fan. This is He basically plays Elite Dangerous and is Nintendo. And <laughs> this is the game that has him the most excited uh, about anything that's coming out. So, yeah. yeah. That's, that's it, it for me. I mean, other than that, I'm Final Fantasy. Like, <laughs> feed it into my retinas. Burn it into my retinas. <laughs> The two pillar RPG remake projects, Final Fantasy VII and Super Mario RPG. I yeah. love it. <laughs> yep. Now we just need Chrono Trigger <laughs> easily available on new on new consoles. So we're 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 getting like Chrono Cross remake effectively. When right? is when is Chrono Trigger coming? Like <laughs> that Chrono Cross is a great game. Don't get me wrong. I loved that game on the PlayStation, but like I want to re-experience Chrono Trigger for the first time. I want to <laughs> see that Akira Toriyama art style, but like, you know, fully 3D. Every time I see an eight, I think the official name for it, or I don't know if this is just like the internet terminology we've we've deemed it, but the HD 2D games, Octobat Traveler, um, Live a Live, the Live a Live remake, um, Triangle Strategy. Oh, it just makes me wish like, oh my gosh, just imagine like Chrono Trigger given that sort of treatment. That would be that would be the highlight of any direct be or beautiful. PlayStation showcase for that matter. Be beautiful. <sighs> That's also Square Enix, so they're just they're busy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you have an MMO team making Final Fantasy 16 at the same time, yeah, I yeah. get it. They're a little busy. <laughs> we'll get it when we get it, and it'll maybe be good. So, well, we'll just have to wait and see. And on that note, while we eagerly plead Square Enix to remake Chrono Trigger, uh, we'll end this episode. Joseph, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you about reviews unity and final fantasy 7 rebirth <laughs> thanks for having me this was a lot of fun where can the people find you please promote plug anything to your heart's content uh obviously you can find me on the website mmorpg.com um but if you want to follow me on twitter uh it's L-O- at lotr lore you'll hear me complain about football talk lord of the rings <laughs> and uh other other things other than that i it's basically it so yeah go read our stuff please keep the lights on <laughs> Yes, MMORPG.com. Uh, Caitlin, 
you're back. Remind people where they can find you. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd and everything at Caitlin Redwing. Um, I have a blue sky and threads. I probably won't use them. So you could follow me if you want. But I think <laughs> I've I think I've decided I'm just sticking with Twitter slash X until I get too sick of it. So for the time being, that's where you can find me. Likewise, you can find me everywhere at Sam Scott Mosier, including on the maybe sinking ship that is Twitter, but I will I will go down with it for now. Um, you can find the show uh, on that platform as well at Real Time Strats and as well as YouTube at Real Time Strats. Email us questions at podcast at triplepointpr.com. And until next time, next Wednesday particularly, because remember, we're back weekly. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>